Hello, welcome to A Leader Like Me podcast, where we will be amplifying diverse voices. My name is Advita Patel. And I'm Priya Bates, and we're co-founders of A Leader Like Me. We really hope you enjoy this listen. This week, we interviewed Don McPherson. Don McPherson was an All-American quarterback at Syracuse University and is a veteran of the NFL and the Canadian Football League. In 2008, McPherson was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame. And in 2013, Syracuse University retired his number nine jersey. Recently, Don is the recipient, the 2021 recipient of the William Pearson Tolley Medal for Distinguished Leadership in Lifelong Learning presented by Syracuse University School of Education and the 2020 National Football Foundation's outstanding contribution to amateur football. In 2019, McPherson published You Throw Like a Girl, The Blind Spot of Masculinity, which chronicles 37 years of harnessing the power and appeal of sport to address complex social issues and focuses on a quarter century of work on gender-based violence prevention. I think about the fact that we were talking to Don, a football player, about masculinity, and there was so much we learned. Would you agree, Advita? Oh, I learned so much from Don. It was it was an incredible interview. And I'm not, you know, being in the, maybe being in the UK is an excuse, but I'm not into American football. <laughs> I don't really know much about it. I don't really understand the game, but I completely understood you know, when Don explained some of the traits in the masculinity in this sport and what can happen, it really made me want to investigate a little bit more and understand what the differences were. Because he was really against, if you remember, Priya, talking about toxic masculinity and reframing it into authentic masculinity. Authentic and aspirational masculinity. Yeah. And that is something that I, I never really heard of before, to be honest with you. I never heard it referred. I've heard a lot of around toxic masculinity and what men shouldn't do and shouldn't be this way and shouldn't be that way. And especially in recent times, you know, especially in the UK as well, there's been a lot around the Me Too movement, the horrible, degrading kind of abuse some women have faced and the murders that have taken place. And men have been asked to sort themselves out, basically, you know, and there's been lots of Twitter noise and Twitter conversation. And Don's conversation you know, the way he reframes some of that thinking and talking around putting the onus on men to change the way they contribute to the changes we need in society for women to feel safer in, in the world that we're in, you know, made me recognize that actually, if we did reframe the thinking a little bit, then what changes could actually happen? And that's where that aspirational masculinity comes from. And what it really came, uh, came uh, from was the fact that we really need to fix a lot of things that are wrong in terms of how we raise our boys, in terms of what we say to them. And that's what You Throw Like a Girl is about. It's a great book for those uh, who are interested in picking it up and reading it. Um, it's an amazing perspective and it really makes you think differently. And I love the fact that as women, as women of color, for us to come in and have a conversation about masculinity, which you would not expect, was something that we all learn from and we all realize there's things that we need to do together 
in order to move forward. So that's that's something that like John Don just really inspired me with his vulnerability, uh, with his stories, with his way of explaining some of these complex concepts. He just really got through and helped me think differently about this area. And I, I really hope, and we really hope that when you listen to Don's interview, you feel the same. It's an incredible conversation. Please do follow Don and the work that he's doing. All the information is in the show notes. And as usual, if you enjoy this conversation and this podcast, then please do share, like, and leave a review for us. We really appreciate all your support. We hope you enjoy it. If you're a woman of color who is looking to build courage and confidence, join The Nest, a safe and supportive community that will help you progress in your career. You can find out more at aleaderlikeme.com. We're so pleased today to have Don McPherson here with us. Um, Don, can you just start by introducing yourself to our global audience? Well, it's a pleasure to meet everyone and see you all. I am uh, I, I'm here in New York, and I was a college and professional football player for many years back in the 80s and 90s, and I've been doing work around men's violence against women and gender-based violence, um, and with a focus on, on engaging men uh, in a positive conversation around masculinity. So I, I do that work uh, mostly throughout the United States um, and mostly on college campuses. Which is amazing. Now, one of the reasons we asked you to talk to us today is because in 2019, you published a book called You Throw Like a Girl, The Blind Spot of Masculinity. And I've read this book. It's an excellent book. So tell me a little bit about the premise of the book and specifically the words you throw like a girl. You know, when I retired from 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 football, uh, as you know, my years in the Canadian Football League and and just bouncing around, doing work in schools and playing football. I didn't know anything about the issue of men's violence against women, all the domestic and sexual violence um, in, our, in our culture. I didn't know about it. I, I knew of it, but didn't really know anything about it. And I got to Northeastern University uh, in 1994, in the fall of 1994, and I heard this guy named Jackson Katz, who ended up being a colleague and a mentor of mine, talking about all forms of men's violence against women. And I, as I said, was clueless. And one thing that kept ringing to me is he was talking about the, the, the association of, of how men identify as what it means to be a man with how we learn that and the impact on the narrow net masculinity that comes from that, but also the impact on women's lives. And, and that how I learned what it meant to be a man kept ringing in my head. And that, that threat or that insult, you throw like a girl or don't be, um, kept ringing in my head because that was my earliest understanding of masculinity as well as my relationship with with women juxtaposed women was being being called a girl saying through like a girl was the ultimate insult and so i've been asking that question of men for the last 27 years what's the worst insult you've ever heard as a little boy and it's that language you throw like a girl which does two things one it tells boys to man up right and the second thing is it is it um, it says that women and girls are less than. That's why it's an insult. And so that's the, the whole point of the book is to, to pull out that language, how boys learn what it means to be a man and the impact of women's lives. You know what, Don? I really admire that you have 
you know, you said you've worked in it, you've worked on this for like 27 years, which is just incredible. And if I think back to what's going on in the UK, and I think it is kind of global as well in terms of we've had some absolutely terrible violence, you know, men's violence against women in the UK, and it and it's 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 in the media. Uh, only sadly, only on um, last week, uh, somebody was murdered going for a run. A woman was murdered at 24 years old going for a run. You know, when and women are now standing up saying, this is just not on men. You need to own this. You know, you need to take responsibility for this. You know, the way we talk about the language around the violence that women suffer from, it's, it's always on the it's always on the women, right, to, to kind of fix. And the fact that you have been working in this field and this area of work, I should say, for the period of time you have, it's just incredible because there is a lot of defensiveness. So one of the hashtags on social media that went round and you may have seen it was not all men mm. um, when, when they were talking about men's violence against women. And I just wanted to get your perspective on that. You know, what, what, it's a big question to ask, I know, and, it, and it's not solvable in the answer, I suppose, but what is that resistance, do you think, that, that, that leads to that defensiveness that some men have, you know, around this whole not all men? And people were jumping on that kind of bandwagon and support even women, you know, some women were supporting that hashtag saying, yes, it isn't all men and we shouldn't be tarring everyone with the same brush. But what are your thoughts on that? It's, it's not all men, but 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 if all men remain silent, the problem continues to happen. And so it, it's like racism. It's not all white people, but if white people are silent about it, it will continue to exist. And, and let's be honest, but that, that is the ultimate of privilege is to not have to deal with problems. And, and very often people think of privilege and the way that I look at privilege is that you, I have something that you don't have, therefore I have a privilege. And, and you're going to tell me, Don, you have a privilege, you need to give up that privilege. Well, I don't look at that it, that way. I look at that privilege keeps me from recognizing and learning. If I don't have to deal with a problem, if I don't have to deal with uh, anything that, um, that affects people's lives, that's a privilege. If I don't have to worry about violence against women because I'm a man, that is not only a privilege, but it also means that my silence, my privileged silence, makes me part of the problem. So, no, not all men are, are perpetrators, but all men do live in male privilege that, that is our silence. So when we get called out about it, that's the defensiveness. You're asking me to address something and to talk about something that I didn't do. However, my silence is part of the problem. And so that's where the defensiveness comes from. Uh, when, I, when I first learned about this issue, I learned it from a guy named Jack Katz, as I mentioned. And not only did he talk about my, what I always defined what he asked me to do was to use a privilege I didn't know I had to address a problem I didn't know was mine. And so I had to really look at recognizing that all forms of men's violence against women will call them women's issues. Mm. But the reality is they're men's issues. They're men's issues because men perpetrate violence. Yeah. Right? And if we say that women's issues, women aren't going to solve the problem of men's violence. It is men's violence. That's why I say men's violence against women, not just violence against women. It's not happening from some you know, um, abstract uh, um, force. It is men committing acts of violence against women. Therefore, it is a men's issue to solve. And it's something you talk a lot about in the book as well, the, the fact that our words matter. That yes. when we talk about violence, it shouldn't be violence against women. It's not about the victims and centering the victims, but how we actually start changing our language to focus on those who have done the wrong. Correct. And, and you know, it's, it's funny because I, I funny, I, I have talked a, a lot about 
how my father was a police officer and when and I used to watch him and listen to him talk about solving crimes, right? They didn't study the victims, right? You do study some about some behavior, uh, but if, if uh, someone steals my car, they don't blame me for where I parked or blame me for the type of car that I purchased, right? We look at the, at the perpetrators, how they steal the car, how they get into the car, what do they do? What was their motivation? What did they do with the car once they got the car? They study the behavior of the criminals. To, in order to solve the, the, the crime. And so if we're gonna solve the, uh, fix the problem of men's violence against women, we have to put men into the equation. Uh, and then we have to look at men's behavior that not just leads to it, but how do we perpetuate a culture that is indifferent to the violence? You know, such such valid points. And it just, it, it seems when we're talking to you, Don, really simple. You know, why would you not put the the, the men at the center of this and try and understand what leads to this violence against women and, and involve them in the conversation rather than women having to change who they are or how they behave. You know, I, you know, growing up in a, in a, in, in the, in the world that I grew up in, 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 in the area, my parents always said things like, be careful when you're going out, make sure you go with a friend, have your keys in your hand, lock the doors as soon as you get in there, you don't know who's out there. It was never on, it was always about me staying safe. It was never about the the person who was going to potentially attack me or anything like that. And it's always been like that. Yes. You know, I, I, I in, in the book, I refer to it as the list. Yes. And it's the list of all the things that we tell young women to do to survive. I don't like the term rape culture. Um, I don't like a lot of these certain terms because they, be, they become a little bit confusing to people. Um, but it is a rape culture if we all we do is tell women how to survive it, mm. but we don't tell boys how to stop it. Yeah. And so we tell women to carry a mace, carry a pepper spray, take self-defense forces, watch a drink, all the things we tell women to do to do to protect themselves against us as men. We don't tell boys those things. We may tell boys things to protect themselves if they're gonna get to a fight or if they're in a bad part of the neighborhood or, or those sorts of things, but we're not telling boys what to do to protect themselves from being sexually assaulted. And, and that's the, that is the key to, like, once again, that privilege. My privilege is that I don't have to worry about being sexually assaulted. And the reality is most sexual assaults don't occur because someone jumps out of a van or jumps out of the bushes. They are people who know one another and, and mm. have known each other for some time. And the, the, the man, in, in many cases, has actually groomed the, the, the victim, right? He, he made them feel comfortable, made them feel whether it was with alcohol or, or with, with just being friends for, for quite some mm -hmm. time. So those are the kinds of things that, um, that that language matters, but also that thing that we tell women that this is what you need to do to protect yourselves against us as men, but no yeah. discussion with us as men about how we should not be doing those things. No. Definitely. So let's have a chat about um, toxic versus aspirational masculinity then uh, and the harm it, it does do to men. So, you know, things like I need help, man up, suck it up, power through. You know, what, what are your thoughts on, on that? I have a big problem with the term toxic masculinity. If, if we're going to engage men in a conversation that's going to move this forward, uh, it's, it can't be in a, in a conversation to that point, not all men, right? It can't be a, a, a conversation that's indicting of men. And what's really unfortunate about this generation, let's take college men, for example, they're of the age that they've heard their entire lives, that their identity is men. The very notion of masculinity is toxic. If you, excuse me, if you think about toxic, how we use that, that, that word prior to talking about relationships or masculinity, it was waste. 
But you, you don't even put toxic waste with garbage. You separate toxic waste from garbage. Mm. And this is a generation of young boys and men who have heard that their, their identity as men is toxic, that it should be removed from society. And the problem and how we got to this point is that the only form of masculinity that we were talking with men about was the form of masculinity that was harming women's lives. Mm. Men weren't saying, hey, you know, what? I really want to understand and, and, and really dissect what it means to be a man. We weren't doing that. Once again, that's that pushback when we get challenged to really start talking about ourselves as whole people, love, loving, caring, emotional, vulnerable, passive, submissive, empathetic. When we are challenged with those things that we have not been raised to really embrace those qualities of our humanity, it's difficult. But the only form of masculinity that we did have been talking about is the part that it impacts women's lives. That's why we're talking about masculinity, not because men want to, want to do it, but because women have implored us to do it, to do so. So the only form of masculinity that we're talking about is the toxicity. It are the bad things that we do want to remove, the violence, the, the, the uh, inability to emote, the inability to, to compromise, the inability to, to, to talk and communicate and share feelings and be live in our, as I say, in our authentic wholeness. Mm -hmm. And so what I talk about is aspirational masculinity, not what I want to get rid of, what I want for you. Because in that, in that toolbox that is our identity is being tough and strong and don't back down, but there's also being loving and caring, all those qualities I mentioned a moment ago. And so we need to en enable men to use all the qualities in their toolbox. That's aspirational masculinity. That's what I want for you, not for what I want to get rid of, but what I want for you to live your authentic homes. That's amazing, Don. Uh, you spent the early part of your career, as you'd mentioned, in athletics. You were quarterback, okay, football for those of our audience. This is American football, not uh, what we refer to as soccer here, and you refer to as football in Europe. But so the, the NFL, the National Football League, you were on the Philadelphia Eagles. In the Canadian Football League, uh, you were on the Hamilton Ticats here. Um, you were also a part of the U.S. College Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. which is a pretty big deal. Your jersey was retired. <laughs> that like mm -hmm. This is a, a big deal. People, especially in the U.S. and Canada, know who you are. And you have been part of what is the pinnacle of masculinity, an athlete, a recognized athlete who's made a career of it. What was that like in terms of the expectations when you were in uh, in athletics, in professional athletics? You know, it's funny, I wrote a book um, when I first retired from football titled, I Thought It Mattered. And it was all about, uh, I thought all the hyperbole of sport mattered, uh, it was, that it was important and that it was, it meant something. And it was, it was teaching me life lessons. And, um, and in, in many ways, it was all a lie. Um, I, I, that actually helped me frame a lot of the language that I used in my work around men's violence against women and masculinity, uh, because I talk about the myth of masculinity, the myth that being a man is being tough and strong. No, being a man is being loving and caring and vulnerable and empathetic and, 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 and at wholeness. Um, and also the, the myth around sports is that sports builds character and sports does all this, builds community, and it's all a lie. The notion that athletes are better people because they can play a sport, um, we, we see now that more than ever. I, I came of age in sports in, in the 80s and 90s when this notion that athletes were role models. No, athletes only were told role models, quite frankly, when black men started making more money 
than, than the white men who were covering them and, and watching them play. All of a sudden, black men became role, athletes became role models because they had so much visibility, they want to control their behavior. So you're a role model. You must behave in a way that my kid's watching you. Well, I'm sorry if, if, if your white kid doesn't, um, doesn't adhere to the behavior of black men who grew up in a completely different environment, but now have this mantle that you've given them because we think that sports is so important in the, in the culture. And so as I was coming up, I'd reckon, I recognized that myth. I recognized that the people thought that I was a better person because I was an athlete. I, I got asked to go talk to kids in schools. And I always say that I, I got asked to talk to kids in schools um, who were too young to drink and too young to drive about drunk driving, about their parents' behavior. But somehow they thought I had the answer. Somehow they thought I was the one to, to be to be uh, to put in front of young people around these critical issues, and so that was part of what I referred to as the myth of, of sports. Um, and I was very very aware. I was very aware of being a black man in the United States, where all of a sudden, because I was an athlete and and a, and a good athlete, that I was different from other black people. I was accepted by white culture, um, and I and I recognized that at a, at a very early age. Started to, to see all the all the mythology around sports. Where did, where did your, um, you know, from the conversation that I've had with other athletes, Dawn, and, and their perception of who they are, you know, and no disrespect to the athletes of the world at all, but sometimes ego does play a big part, right? Of Because of, you are put on a pedestal, you know, you have got fans, have got supporters, which can, you know, change the way you think about things at times, right? And put you in a different kind of limelight. What would you say has been your inspiration or aspiration or whatever that is for you to be who you are today you know what has driven you to think this way and behave this and you you know like you said you went to schools to educate young children about certain things that you felt not everybody was qualified to do but I personally you know and I'm sure some of our listeners will think the same not not everybody has that kind of mindset to think that way you know they will see that as a bit of a uh, an accolade and a celebration and acknowledgement and get a little bit of an ego around it. You know, who, who was that or what was that that led you to the moment? You know, I, I think a, a few things uh, about that, uh, Avita, that, that I think are really kind of interesting to me, and I guess that's why I, I do the work that I do, is athletes, we, do we have big egos? Huge egos. I mean, you know, if it's between you and me, I. I, I win, you lose, right? I mean, this is that's the proposition. And, and I'm gonna. I, I once was playing a little card game with my daughters when they were three and five years old. They may have been younger, and I was not letting them win. I wanted to win. Right? So yes, we have huge egos. We we want to win, and we're driven, and we have that competitive mm. edge um, that, that is with us all the time. But athletes are also amongst the most insecure people you will ever meet because they're mm. constantly being judged by that performance. And, and you're constantly concerned, am I ready? Am I prepared? Did I prepare enough? Is my opponent better prepared than, than I? You know, so there's all these insecurities about who we are. So we're constantly living in that, in that, in that realm. And, and so while people think that athletes have these big egos and, and they see the way athletes respond, it's, all, it's it very often it is out of an insecurity that I need to be better mm. uh, because we live in, in, that, in that sort of that life paradigm. Uh, and, and for me, I knew I'm, I'm the youngest of five kids. My mother was a school nurse. My father was a police officer. Um, my family's from Jamaica, so we had a little different look on, on, on America in, in, in some ways growing up. And I knew that the ability to play football 
and have people give me a scholarship or fame or money was such an amazing privilege. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and I had uh, two older brothers that were both professional athletes. So we grew up in this environment as a kid. I never thought of myself as, as, a, as a great athlete um, or an athletic family because sports is just what we did. We like to play. Mm-hmm. And, and when all the, you know, so all the extras got put on top of that, um, I was still that insecure kid. Uh, my oldest brother played for the San Diego Chargers with professional football. My other brother was a, a, a ranked boxer. He's ranked second in the world. He's a middleweight fighter. So I was the third kid in that family, um, always trying to be better. And when I heard people asking me and, and talk, heard people talking about the social issues that they were asking me to talk about, uh, it was very easy because it, for many, in many cases, there were things that, that either I experienced in my life or I struggled with in my life, or I wanted to help young people figure out how to make good decisions because that's what I had to do. Once I was recognized as an athlete, it was always, well, you better behave yourself to get to the next level. And so I was always trying to help young people use the same skills, uh, coping skills with, with society that, that I use as a young as a young person. And I always felt that um, we do young people a disservice because when we want them to make good decisions around difficult social issues, we typically use what I refer to as prevention language and scare tactics. Just say no, just walk away. This is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. I wouldn't tell kids if you if you do drugs, your brain's gonna fry. Well, that doesn't mean anything to a young person. How do you truly help them make good decisions around difficult social issues? And that's that's really what I do and, and what I've enjoyed doing my, my entire career um, is, is really is having honest conversations with young people, giving them good information so that they can make good decisions. You know, Don, one of the things that's always inspired me about you is you had that big career, but I think you found your calling. You've really followed your passion. You're doing exactly what you're meant to be doing. But in the book and and in conversations we've had in the past, you talk about coming off of that high as an athlete and then getting back into reality and and the number of suicides you've seen from, you know, from friends and colleagues because of of that change and and, and, uh, that lack of courage and confidence when they they don't have that jersey on or they're no longer seen as that superstar yeah you know Brenda, that, that is probably like when we talk about toxic masculinity and aspirational masculinity um that is is um arguably one of one of the the things that that stays in the back of my head when i published a book i had 33 guys that i knew through football either played with or contemporaries with uh, or or friends uh, who were dead. And uh, of those 33 guys, none of them made 50. Um, there were six of them were suicides and, and the famous suicides that ended up in, in the film called Concussion. Uh, and a lot of people wanted to blame CTE, chronic traumatic encephalitis. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly, but um, the, the, the uh, uh, degenerative uh, brain injuries from multiple concussions. And I don't blame that. I don't blame those deaths or, or the, the suicides. Or a lot of the health problems that former NFL players are having on, on CTE, on, on the brain injuries. I blame it on masculinity because so many of those men and so many of those problems could have been uh, dealt with if men would have said, I am struggling. I am hurting. I need help. And, and I say in the book that so many of these men were made vulnerable by the same things that made them warriors. What made them warriors was, was their ability to ignore the pain. 
was their ability to fight through and play through their pain, was the ability to ignore everything around them and just focus on, on one singular thing and not say, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I don't know how to do this, I can't do this alone. And so when they left the game, they were still dealing with life, again, in that same way that themselves, I can fight through this, I don't need help. And the people around them, hey, Don's a great guy, Don's a successful athlete, he doesn't need help, he doesn't have any problems. And, and the reality is we do. And, and when, as you said, when I came out of the game of football, I had to adjust to a life that was very different than, than the one that I was when I was when I was a professional athlete. And so much of even my identity, even as much as I tried to control my identity in the game, I still came out of it. I was like, wow, no one at the airport knows me here. Right. No one's patting me on the back. No one's at the, the front door of the restaurant saying, hey, Mr. McPherson, come on in. Right. You have to adjust to so many things. Uh, um, outside of the game, and most especially, you have to adjust to the fact that you cannot deal with life the way you did when you were an athlete, just pushing through and forging through. And so, so many of those guys, and I know for a fact that the men who uh, committed suicide, uh, who, who were friends of mine, who were great, tremendous football players, also had alcohol problems, family problems, financial problems, marriage problems, uh, a whole host of other issues that were compounding on top of the physical pain that was residual from the game and the emotional pain residual from the game. And we never addressed any of those things. We just said, well, he has so many head injuries. He went, he, he had his brain injury and that caused him to commit suicide. No, there was a lot more going on. I've had multiple concussions. My brother had multiple concussions as, a, as, a, as an athlete. And, and he runs a mega church and, and has, writ, has written several books. And, and, and I'm saying, I published a book and I've been doing this work uh, that I've, I've been doing for a quarter century um, because there are all these other ways in which you have to live your life other than just manning up and powering through. Mm. So uh, on that, on that then, Don, what do you, th- you know, for the folks who are listening to us right now, who may be witnessing these symptoms in some of their loved ones or even in themselves, you know, recognizing that they need to create some change or seek help, you know, what is it that could help, you know, whether they're struggling themselves or whether their loved ones are struggling or their friends or colleagues, is there anything that you can share with them to kind of get them the help they need or the support that they need or, you know, that rewiring that sometimes we often forget about mm. with, with some of these folks. Yeah, I, I refer to it as the blind spot of masculinity and the blind spot is that, is what I just said, is that, that we man up and that's just, that's enough to deal with the problems and deal with different issues. Uh, and the reality is, is that that has that, that, that blind spot has the impact of men not caring for themselves. And, and so the, the first thing that, that, we need to do with four men is is to allow men to live in their authentic wholeness and give them the space to and i, I know it sounds funny to say to give men space to live in their authentic wholeness because most men will say i'm okay you're right and the arms will get folded the shoulders will go up and i'm good right and that's but that's not our wholeness our wholeness is being vulnerable and sensitive and empathetic um and and, and allowing men to live in that to be able to access support and help and so the, the first thing that we need to do is, is to provide that space uh, for men and men need to, to do that most especially for each other to provide that space for each other to, to be that and then for men who, who, are, who are struggling or dealing with things that they feel like uh, they feel trapped and I, and I know I'm, I'm 56 years old and, and um, 
at that, at that point in my life where my kids are going to college and I should be retiring and I'm, I'm coming out of a failed marriage and, you know, there's all these stresses on me. And am I, how do I, how do I deal with this? And so many men do. I, I'm in that category, man, who commit suicide because they just don't see the end. And they don't realize that part of the end is a, a, a transition of, of, of being a whole human being and not doing the things the way you did them when you were 22 and 23 and just powered through and drank your way through it or, or pushed through it with work, um, but really said, I need help to, to manage where I am in my life. And, and the, the big thing is for, for us to provide that space for men to be able to live in their wholeness. Great, you know, great advice. And again, you know, Priya and I will share in the show notes um, on this episode where you can get help and support if needed as well, because I think that's really important. So we're going to move into the rapid fire round, Don, okay. but we don't expect you to answer rapidly. <laughs> we we keep saying we need to get a new term or a new, a new. So if any listener actually has a good idea on what we can call this segment, then please do let us know. So the first question on this rapid fire question round is, um, let me just get my, so I get the exact wording right. Um, name a leader you admire who has inspired you. Richard Labchick. Um, Richard Lapchick is the son of, of a man named Joe Lapchick, and Joe Lapchick was the first head coach and general manager of the New York Knicks. And um, Richard and Joe Lapchick signed as the first head coach and general manager of the New York Knicks. Rich, uh, Joe Lapchick signed the first black player, one of the first black players in the in the NBA, a guy named Matt Clifton in 1950. And Richard Lapchick was his son who watched his dad go through um, being one day being a hero first head coach and general manager of the New York Knicks in the NBA National Basketball Association Hall of Fame uh, to being public enemy number one because he signed a black player. And so Richard Lapchick, the son uh, in his father's legacy has been doing work around racism in sport um, for, for generations and was actually personally invited to Nelson Mandel's inauguration for his work in the anti-apartheid movement as a white man doing work around uh, race and sport. Um, I, that's who I went to work with and for. Um, in 1994, when I retired, um, Richard Lapchick is, is one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. Wow, I, I never knew that story. That's amazing. What is the one piece of advice you would give your younger self? <sighs> Have more fun. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I get here to this point in my life, if I follow <laughs> that advice. But I was a very serious, I was a very serious person. Um, not, not serious to the point where I didn't laugh, and, and, but I, was, I, I did not have a lot of fun. I still don't, um, and much to the chagrin of a lot of people close to me. Um, I, as a kid, I was, I was so busy watching the world around me um, and being very careful uh, about how I navigated the world. And so um, if it would be one thing, I'd say to have a little bit more fun. Yeah, completely agree. You know, we're surrounded right now with so much. You no, know, it's great that we have so much access to information. You know, don't get me wrong. I love the fact that we've got, you know, the world has opened up, but it also means we have access to a lot of information and it can really drain our energy and enthusiasm for life at times. And when, when you, you know, when the media is conditioned to talk about the negatives, right? And I think. Right we can really get sucked into that. So I, you know, I'm with you on having more fun, Don. I think it's, it's so important. Um, what wouldn't we know about you by just looking at you? 
Well, I, I do identify as a feminist, but that's 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 part of this conversation. So, um, what don't you know about me by looking at me? I'm a huge Barbra Streisand fan. How's that? <laughs> Love that. What's your favorite? I would never song? have guessed that. <laughs> so, so before every game, when I was an athlete, and now when I need some inspiration, this is a book I'm going to write one day. Uh, there were six songs I would listen to. Um, and, and of the, in the six, of the six, uh, two of the six are from the film Gentle, which is a, which you can't get more Barbra Streisand than that. <laughs> that is like the ultimate uh, Babs uh, uh, film. Uh, although, um, the way we were, I watched the way we were about, about a month ago, I was crying in my apartment watching the way we were. Um, I, I just, I love everything about it. And I think she's one of the greatest voices of, of, of our time. She really is. No, no, I would not expect that, Don. So you have surprised me. <laughs> Incredible. So just before we, we sign off this episode, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Or you know, where can they find you if they want more information? What you know, what 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 one piece of advice would you share with them? Um, I, I am I'm very easy to find. My name is Don McPherson uh, on Twitter. It's at Don McPherson. I'm you know on on different social media platforms, uh, although not very active, but, but I'm there. Um, I mentioned earlier about the, the term toxic masculinity, and I think in so many ways, um, we need to move towards a ter the term that I use, which is aspirational masculinity. I think we need to be aspirational in so much of what we do. Uh, I mean, you talked about how the media focuses on the negative. We need to start focusing on, on the positive, and we need to reframe even how we love each other. Um, by loving each other, I, I talk about not just showering each other with gifts or or talking about privilege, but loving each other by allowing each other to live our authentic wholeness and loving each other by not asking each other to do stupid things to to prove that you belong or or to be dominant to prove that you you're you're a winner in in certain aspects of life, um, but that we are aspirational about how we care about each other, that we love each other to respect who we who each other who we are in, 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 as I always say, in our authentic wholeness. And so I always talk about aspirational masculinity. And I think it, the, the, the same is true about how we love each other. It has to be aspirational. What do we want for each other? And how do we want to each other to, to live in this world? That was wonderful, Don. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I think there's a lot that you had to uh, that got us all thinking, you know, women and men about how we can actually progress together. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Don. My pleasure.